Good evening. I'm Kevin Marsh, and this is Ideas. My very strong feeling is that if children are allowed a growing up, which enables them to become adults with a strong sense of their own dignity and competence and worth, they will extend these feelings to include other people. The idea of childhood as a protected space for human development is the creation of centuries. Today, this idea rests on a knife edge, threatened by social, economic, and technological changes which are pushing the very limits of our adaptability. The average American child sees 6,000 hours of television before entering kindergarten at age five. Now this means that the whole bulk of their model structure of the world, their criteria system for judging what is real and not real in the world, is no longer the parent. The integrity of any society depends very directly on the bonds which link families and communities together. And it's in childhood that these bonds are forged and the relations between generations established. In the context of secure human bonds, technological change can be shaped and controlled. Without them, childhood itself becomes a domain of technological management and control. Everything runs according to schedule. Um, agendas and instructions are pasted up on the door of every room. So you see the children becoming almost mini assembly line workers, which is a rather tragic sight. Tonight on Ideas, the final program in our series, The World of the Child, presented by David Cayley. I want to begin tonight's program with a rather nightmarish vision of what may lie in store for the infants of the future. It was brought to my attention by Dr. Seymour Pappert of MIT, whom I had arranged to interview on the subject of children and computers. He had been painting a rather sunny picture of the educational possibilities of computers, when he mentioned, towards the end of our conversation, that he saw causes for alarm as well as for optimism. He continued as follows. We now have the means to try experiments on children, which could have radical consequences which only show themselves many years later. I think it's very plausible that the first year or two is vitally important, or the first few months maybe are vitally important in the establishment of object relations, especially with, with the mother, with other people, and also relations with objects in the ordinary sense of things. And uh, the relationship with reality gets built up at that time. And uh, up to now, our technologies have not intervened very much. And older children might look at the television a lot. Three-month-old children or even two-year-old children don't look at television. They're really very superficially touched by any technologies. And I think we do now have the means to make interactive devices that could capture the attention of a new newborn on day one and lock into what kinds of feedback are desired by the child. So we could enter dynamically into the developmental process of the relation between a child and, and reality I think we absolutely don't know anything about what the consequences of this would be, and we certainly could make a generation of psychotics. And more, moreover, I think there are economic forces that are pushing towards that, that uh, there's obviously a big industry that would love to make these devices, and I think there are whole schools of psychologists who would love to say, look, these things are stimulating the children. Stimulation is what they need. And, of course, there are millions of parents who would like the babysitting aspect, and so that something which you could call the baby stimulator could become the, the big selling item of next year. On hearing this, I suggested that surely nothing could rival the bonding process by which mothers and newborn infants become attached to each other. He was skeptical. So far, there's never been any, anything that could really rival that bonding. And I think that one could imagine machines so designed so seductive, so engrossing for the children that they side, they bypass the bonding. There's the idea that's come up in, in, in research on, of the ethologists, people like Tinbergen and Lorenz, who find, they can find stimuli that release the natural responses in a more powerful way than the natural stimuli. We haven't yet 
had that sort of thing for human babies in their first weeks and months of life, but it's not inconceivable. It's doubtful whether the baby stimulator will be commercially available next year, although I don't doubt Dr. Pappert's statement that it is technically feasible. What alarms me, however, is the plausibility of his idea that substantial sections of our society might welcome such a device. It becomes plausible, I think, when we consider the extent to which we are already abandoning our children to preschool institutions where they are hectored and hurried into early achievement. Is it such a long jump from trying to teach babies to read to Papert's horrific vision of computerized baby care? We seem to be able to give our children everything but what they actually need, unhurried time and uncrowded space in which to grow up at their own speed. And because we are too busy to be available to our children in their time, they must learn from infancy to live in the institutional time by which we measure our own lives. The regimen in many daycare centers is a case in point. Valerie Saransky, who teaches in the Department of Educational Psychology at the University of Michigan, has made extensive studies of existing daycare facilities and reported her conclusions in a book called the erosion of childhood. Although she is generally concerned with the extension of schooling into early childhood, she singles out the rapidly growing corporate daycare sector as a particular problem. What I found in my observations in my two-year study, which I report in my, my book, as well as subsequent observational work that I've done in the last three or four years, I see tremendous abuses occurring. In some cases, they outright uh, physical or psychological abuse of children and in other cases they're more subtle. For example, I was in Canada last May and visited several profit-run centers in Alberta and the one center that I visited was a fairly competently run daycare which had infants going through children in kindergarten. Each age group of child was confined to a specific room and uh, there were specific activities that were geared supposedly to the developmental level of, uh, of these children. There were over a hundred children in the center and uh, I sat in the infant room for a while and I observed all the infants being woken up and given their snack at the same time and put in their high chairs children at that age, um, these kids were about 10 months to a year, who would mess um, with their food, crumble it up, throw it on the floor, experiment by pouring their milk out of the cup, would be reprimanded immediately by the staff, not out of malice, but because uh, it's very difficult to manage 8 to 10 infants doing that at the same time. Infants who wouldn't eat at that particular time would be labeled as, as difficult or problematic. All the kids would be placed on potties for potty training uh, later in the afternoon. I went into the toddler room and found uh, 14 children lined up on their tummies with a crayon in front of them next to a large roll of uh, white paper and they were having a so-called art activity and were told to draw. Each time a child moved out of uh, his or her specific spot which had a cross marked on it they were put back flat on their tummy and said it's drawing time and they were forced to stay there not unpleasantly but nevertheless forced to stay there for 20 minutes because they had to have a so-called art activity when you think of an 18 month old child needing to experiment with the world to play to move uh, to perhaps not lie flat on on a tummy but be able to take several crowns and line them up and turn them into a train as opposed to being forced to draw with them, you realize how even in a relatively mild coercive atmosphere as I, as I saw there, these children are being trained very heavily, being socialized into conformity and docility. If they don't obey the teachers, then they're reprimanded and if they stay there 10 hours a day, obviously they need to feel the approval rather than the reprimand of of their caregiver and so to disobey means in a way to 
to lose love, to lose affection, and to lose um, being in the orbit of the caregiver. And so, of course, the children very quickly, I think, obey, become socialized, and the kids who don't become the rebels or the deviants of, of a structure such as that. And I saw many rebels, i.e. children who would not conform, emerge in, in many of the places that I visited. And if we're trying to, to create uh, two-year-olds um, who conform and who are obedient, who are not allowed to freely experiment and act upon their world, I think that we are doing some very dangerous things, both emotionally as well as cognitively, to their later development. And I have seen these um, particular ways of, of treating children occur most often in the profit-run centers because they resemble most often assembly lines where everything runs according to schedule, where agendas and instructions are pasted up on the door of every room. So you see the children becoming almost mini-assembly line workers, which is a rather tragic sight. Of course, I've seen abusive situations too in Lollipop Learning Center, which is the pseudonym I gave the centers that I looked at in in the Midwest. Uh, I saw children being locked in closets. I saw them being hit. I saw them being psychologically humiliated and, and abused. And when that happens as a daily dose of existence, I think, again, we need to react with horror at what's happening to, to, to our young children in the society. In the daycare centers which Valerie Saransky describes, we can see children being denied the opportunity to freely explore their surroundings. In a book called Magical Child, the American writer Joseph Chilton Pierce has suggested that without this type of exploration, children will fail to develop what he calls a full-dimensional sensory knowledge of their world. Certainly, when I speak of a full-dimensional sensory um, structure, we're, we're talking about the difference between that and the ordinary, isolated, alienated child. That is a child who's, of course, separated from parent at birth and then brought up in cribs, playpens, um, strollers, all sorts of devices which keep them separated from a full sensory interaction with the world. And then we have the fact that 60 to 70 percent of all American children under age four are in daycare centers, which is a further means of isolating them from direct contact with family life and so on, and actually the life of the culture, and puts them in artificial holding tanks. Now we have also the fact that the average American child, I can't speak for Canadian, sees 6,000 hours of television before entering kindergarten at age five. Now this means that the whole bulk of their model structure of the world, their criteria system for judging what is real and not real in the world, is no longer the, the parent, no longer really the culture, but the culture and parent as represented by television, because it is the major input into the child's mind-brain system during the entire period of development when he should be developing a knowledge of world and self and the relationships between world and self. And so he's, he's making his whole structure of knowledge of relationship with world and self through television primarily. And this is a shallow dimensional system. It only appeals or only utilizes the long-range sensors of sight and sound. It leaves out the other three senses which are necessary to build a full dimensional knowledge or a structural knowledge of a world system. If you watch the little toddler when they first see television, they try to crawl through the set to get at the stuff at the thingness of it to fill in with the rest of the, of the sensory system. They're driven by nature to do that. And of course, they're thwarted. So then the first seven years, we have the bulk of their, their conscious time and energy being spent on a shallow dimensional structure. Now, this means it isn't so much that uh, you won't get some precocity, uh, but you have no uh, substructure for the great movements of in intelligence later on in the teenage period. The argument here is that full sensory exploration of the world provides the foundation for the later development of formal, abstract intelligence. Television, according to Pierce, inhibits this exploration, 
first by providing a substitute activity, and second by replacing the real work of imagination with synthetic, ready-made imagery. If you look at the highest point of all human thought, according to Piaget, he calls it reversibility thinking. Now, reversibility thinking is totally contingent upon the ability not only to take a problem and solve the problem, but to then retrace the steps of the problem solution, that is, start at the, at the solution and retrace your steps back to the problem to see how you arrived at the solution, and then be able to extract or abstract out of the context of learning the actual ability itself as a kind of blueprint of action of problem solving and then apply that in any other context. Now what happens, you see, is that we're, the child is being stripped of process itself. The mind-brain is not having to produce process. As a result, it's impossible for reversibility thinking to take place since that requires the, the reversing of process itself. And all the child, for instance, in television, the damage of television is not in the programming, but is in the fact that it gives the child an end product without all of the machinery of the brain having to produce the end product over the period of the developmental years in the first seven years. As a result of the stripping of the brain's necessity to produce the product, then there's no way reversibility thinking can possibly take place. That's one thing. The other thing is it strips the limbic system of its necessity of creating internal imagery in keeping with word structure. Because the, the, instead of the internal imagery having to be created by the limbic structure in the brain, you have the finished product of the imagery given as a synthetic process, uh, an end product without any of the production in the brain having to take place. So then there's no way in the world the child is capable of what we call imagination. And imagination is the key to formal operational thinking at age 11, the ability to imagine something not present to the senses, hold that as the goal, and then move toward the target. Now the grounds for that are produced in the first seven years. It would be difficult to prove the validity of what Joseph Pierce says here although we do have the interesting fact that some universities are claiming that up to half of their incoming students are deficient in abstract reasoning ability. I'm inclined to believe that he is at least partly right. If television is the dominant influence on the young child, and many surveys of children's viewing tend to suggest that at least in terms of time it is, then I think it will undermine the child's development. But I don't think this is necessarily true of more moderate viewing so long as exploratory play remains the predominant activity. Decoding television images is also a skill, and perhaps in its place a valuable one. The critical question is not just what does television do to children, but also what experiences does it replace? Alan Mirabelli is the coordinator of communications with the Vanier Institute of the Family in Ottawa, and he says that this question led him to wonder whether television was substituting for a diversity of experience which is simply no longer present in our world. What other experiences does a child or an adult give up in order to participate in, in television viewing? And that began for me to, to sort of give a, a fairly strong sense of what was wrong with the medium or what was wrong with us in our use of the medium to express it better. Because here we are in Canada saying we're willing to spend three hours a day with the television. So I'm giving up, or my child is giving up, a great number of other opportunities to be playing outdoors, to be playing with his friends or her friends, um, generally to be in a social context. As I started to ask that question to myself, what experience are we abandoning? I thought, well, maybe this society is so well organized that we don't want to participate in a variety of other experiences. Let me give you um, a sense of what I mean. If the option is to be isolated in my home with my television set, where I get a variety of things brought into the household, as opposed to being immediately banded into an age group and say, okay, you are four years old, you now go to four-year-old kindergarten. You're five years old, you now go to five-year-old kindergarten. And it goes right through school. How much of a diversified 
experience can the child really acquire by moving outside of the home? Now that we've banded our kids together in peer groups and our old age people and the working community, where's the diversity of experience um, by which one can measure anything? And uh, so I don't blame television per se. One has to say that television was born in an era that was ready for it, um, to provide the diversity that may not have existed elsewhere. Lack of diversity in the lives of children is in some ways reinforced by the lack of real responsibility as well. And without the opportunity to participate responsibly in meaningful activities, children become alienated. Bob Glossop, director of research with the Vanier Institute of the Family. We have created a period of prolonged childhood and adolescence that is almost precisely designed to be a period of irresponsibility. In this regard, we we often put our children in a double bind. By failing to allow them to exercise responsibility, we then uh, are stopped short when, for a variety of reasons, we see irresponsible behavior on the part of children. At the same time, when we, when we look at that so-called irresponsible behavior, I think, I think there's almost a, a perverse sense of jealousy that influences our adult reactions. We create this long period of dependency, and we regard that as a time of, of almost absolute freedom. We use the phrase that it's the best years of your life, etc., etc. We as adults then feel terribly burdened by our own responsibilities and obligations, and therefore look at childhood as that favored time, not recognizing, though, that in creating that dependency of our children, we in fact put them into the position of aliens that they, in a sense, become alienated from the larger world around them. Daycare centers, compulsive television viewing, and the ambivalent attitudes of many adults all limit the opportunities for children to be active in their world. Schools, too, have played their part in this process by encouraging a passive rather than an active style of learning. But according to Seymour Papert, the possibility now exists for children to become much more active learners. In his book, Mindstorms, Dr. Pappert has expressed the view that computers, if properly used, could greatly increase the scope of active, informal learning by children. There's a great deal of learning, obviously, a lot of learning that happens outside of school in an informal way. Some things are not learned informally, and why are they not learned, I suggest, because the environment isn't rich in the materials needed to learn them and that's why we have to have schools or we have to have school teaching in a formal instructional sense because we are filling the gaps we are filling in what the environment the cultural environment did not do the presence of the computer i think is the biggest change in the cultural environment that there's been for a long time perhaps ever and this is going to close in a lot of these gaps in an informal way and make it unnecessary to teach a lot of things that we've had to teach in the past. They will be learned pretty well informally. I think it needs to be added here that the establishment of schools did not result exclusively from the poverty of certain materials in the cultural environment. Schools also play a wide variety of custodial and socializing roles in our society. But to the extent that the role of schools is to transmit knowledge, I think Seymour Papert may be right. In what follows, he suggests that physics, for example, can be learned in an entirely new way with the aid of computers. In physics, it's dynamics, it's understanding movement that's at the heart of physics. The most fundamental physical knowledge is how things move. If you look at how physics is taught in schools, you find that we begin by teaching very static science and we move on to dynamics only very late as an advanced topic. The reason is that we teach with pencil and paper. And if you work with pencil and paper, then what's dynamic can only be grasped by representing it by quite complicated formal means, by equations, by differential calculus. And so we've postponed the dynamic and we start with the static. And this is a fundamental distortion, makes everything much harder 
the computer allows us to turn it around because the computer allows us to have the youngest children using a mathematics of dynamics. Some of the things that the youngest children are doing with the computer is learning to control movement on the computer screen. So that the mastery of the mathematics of movement is something that children can acquire at a very, very young age. And by doing that, we've brought into line the natural order in what's important in science, where dynamics is the important part, with the natural order and what's important for the child, where dynamics is, 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 is what's earliest and most real for the child because you learn the geometry of your body and how to move it around long before you learn any other sort of geometry. And, and moving is what the child knows best. So that we've brought, if you like, the, the learning process in line both with what's epistemologically natural in relation to science, dynamics first, and what's developmentally natural in relation to the child, where again it's dynamics first. And by bringing the epistemological order and the natural developmental order into line with the order in which things are learned, we really allow ex very, very much more natural and more powerful learning than would otherwise happen. Dr. Pappert's extensive observations of how children work with computers were made at MIT in a situation in which the children had unlimited and unforced access to the computers. Without this ample and unconstrained access, he doubts whether the type of powerful learning which he believes is possible will actually take place. Imagine if you had one pencil per classroom. The pencil would not play the role of uh, externalizing process that it does now. It, would, it, it couldn't play any important role in the learning. I think of using the computer, the computer being a medium for creativity of the child. But for the computer to be a medium of creativity, the child's got to have it for enough time to be able to fool around with it, to play with it, to experiment. And, and uh, that implies that there's a higher density of computers than most schools are envisaging at the moment. Uh, if you've got a low density of computers, the, using, using the computer to, to program the child in some very structured way is probably the only rational thing you can do with it. So, and I think that these, the uses of computers that are criticizing don't just come from different ideologies of education. They are imposed by the material conditions. I think this is going to change incredibly rapidly. I think that even now, the cost of giving every child a computer is, uh, I would project it over the 13 years of the children now entering school, is just 1% of what it's going to cost to educate them. And so uh, it's, there's no economic obstacle to giving every child a computer. It's purely in the heads of the educators that they think of it as too expensive. If Dr. Pappard is right, then it is possible that creative use of computers will take us a certain way towards a more active role for children in their own learning. But these possibilities will remain limited so long as children remain cut off from all that is significant in the life of the culture. As our civilization has grown more complex, more specialized, and more fragmented, the lives of our children have grown steadily poorer in opportunities to observe and interact with the lives of adults. Consider, by way of contrast, this portrait of a childhood in the Middle East, drawn by Alan Mirabelli of the Vanier Institute. When my parents would go to either shop or uh, to go and have a cup of coffee at the local cafe, the children are brought along. They are not isolated with a babysitter. That's the first thing. Other adults would do a similar thing children would start playing amongst each other while the parents debated the current politics of the, of the nation or the economic condition or all the quote-unquote serious discussions that adults normally engage in. It's very hard for me as a child to not be aware of two things, what the current economic dilemmas were, but that in itself wasn't that significant, but how adults were responding to it. So when I got older, I had a pretty good living example of what it was like to be a mature adult long before I got there. While I was in that village square playing with my friends, alongside of my parents, I also saw older people. They weren't banded 
into institutions or sort of the golden age clubs. They were an integral part of the community, clearly visible, clearly in some way acting with me. So I had a sense of what it was like to be old, had a sense of what it was like to be a young mother, what it was young, like to be a, a, a younger child, because all of these persons were an active and integrated part of that little world called the Village Square. In modern society, it's very hard to find such a context where one can really diversify the experiential base, regardless of your age. The only example I can think of in modern society is the shopping center, where you can spontaneously step out of your home, go into a public area where you don't need to make an appointment, where you don't need to make a purchase, and walk and just be exposed to humanity at all levels. But even that, that's at a rate that uh, you don't sit down and relax, you don't c converse about the economic issues or the social issues or how to resolve your particular problems with a friend. One of the things we have to do is to make the world more accessible and safe and transparent, visible, and indeed meaningful to children. It's enormously important to children to see many different kinds of adults at work and a lot of the time to have some sense of what the work is. John Holt. When I was in Cuernavaca in the early 1970s, I used to walk around the city, and a lot of children walked around the city. If you weren't a rich child, you could walk around the city by yourself, and the streets were full of unattended five- and six-year-olds who knew all about cars. And a lot, since it was a benign climate, a lot of the small shops and factories were just sort of uh, alcoves in the wall facing out on the street and you could see people grinding flour to make tortillas and working on wood to make furniture and the process by which the typical Mexican house or building was constructed was perfectly obvious. Even the, any half-smart six or seven-year-old hanging around outside a building site for a couple hours a day for a few days would un basically understand how buildings were built. And there was that sense of the meaningfulness of the transparency of most work. In order to preserve access to the world for children, John Holt has become a proponent of home-based education. And he has written about some of the people who are trying this alternative in a book called Teach Your Own. In cases where parents genuinely like their children and enjoy being with them, Holt believes that learning which moves towards the world from a secure base in the home has many advantages over school-based education. In the kinds of families we've been talking about, there is a, there's a, a foundation of emotional security, of trust. And this is, again, essential for learning because learning is by definition, is exploration, it's risk. It means moving from the known and the certain into the unknown and the uncertain. And people simply will not do it unless they are made to feel secure. People who try to teach adults new skills, new ideas, know that they have to spend an extraordinary amount of time reassuring them and, and uh, making them feel that they are in a minimum risk situation and that they're not going to be laughed at and criticized and so forth and so forth. And uh, So this, this is one of the requirements of learning and it's one of the requirements that the schools quite spectacularly fail to satisfy where risk and threat and humiliation and punishment quiver in the air every second where even if nothing else happens to a child who makes a mistake, she or he is almost certain to be laughed at by his fellow students. So the home avoids that. John Holt suggests that the home also provides a kind of flexibility which is difficult to achieve in schools and thus makes children more able to direct their own learning. And I'm often asked, why is the family and the home and the world around the home a better educational milieu than school? Why does it work better? Well, one reason is because the numbers are smaller and this makes possible a kind of flexibility of curriculum and schedule and so forth, which is not impossible in schools, but which schools have not chosen to try to get. I mean, you could, the schools could be a great deal more like families than they are, and I, as a classroom teacher, had, a, I think, a lot of the spirit of a happy, large family in the classroom. It's a, but schools have not chosen to do that. They have, and for 
a hundred years made their model the factory, not the family. They see education as a quasi-industrial process, and they talk about in terms of delivery and control and so forth and so forth. And there, that's a historical fact. And so, as I say, we have in the home a flexibility of schedule and curriculum, uh, which boils down to things like this, that a child reading a book doesn't have to be interrupted until she or he finishes the book. A child, children can finish things. They never finish things in school. They get used to not finishing things. Children can do things as well as they can, and there's a strong instinct of what Veblen called workmanship in young children. They, they may be clumsy, but they like to do things as well as they can, and they hate being little children in school, hate having their pictures taken away before they're finished or told that they, they can't finish the thing they're making. I mean, it's a, it's a deep offense to their sense of workmanship. Later on, they get used to the idea that you don't do you don't care about anything you do in school and you just do it well enough to get by and that sense of workmanship is lost uh, but in the home it need not be john holt also believes that parents have certain natural advantages as teachers despite their lack of formal training the people who teach their own children really like their own children and they know them better and this is extremely important for teaching. One of the things I learned slowly and painfully as a teacher is that uh, what people are capable of learning or tackling depends very much on their, on their mood, their spirit. Uh, when I, I described, and I guess never too late, giving uh, cello lessons to an eight-year-old boy when I myself had been playing only about a year. And I realized that that in the course of a, no more than a 45-minute lesson, this boy could go through a complete cycle of energy and confidence, try all kinds of difficult things, to despondency and despair. I'll never learn his Why do you know? You know, kind of. And then back up to energy and confidence. When he was on his high cycle, I could urge him to try new things. I could say, correct him. I could say, no, that's sharp. Do it again. And when he was in his cycle, down cycle, I had to say, take it easy, Bill, it's okay, you're all right, you know, don't worry about it. And Now, this sensitiveness to the mood of the learner is an absolute essential in teaching, and you, it's almost by definition certainly very difficult to attain in a classroom, although schools could do better than they do, but they don't even try. Also, and parents under, read the signals by which their children say, I'm bored, I'm confused, I, I, I don't understand, I'm frightened, you're pushing me too hard. And they learn, as I eventually did, you know, when to back off and when to wait and when to say, well, think it over for a while, there's no rush on this. Uh, it's very difficult to do in a school situation, not least of all because in a school situation the students, and this is, is just as true of graduate students as of young children, make a point of not letting the teacher know when they're confused or when they're uncertain. And even the kindest teachers, and I think I can call myself that uh, in a classroom situation, may have to spend two-thirds of the year before you get to a point where students will confess uncertainty or confusion, and many won't do it even then. Over the last 20 years or so, there has been a great deal of talk, much of it derogatory, about the nuclear family. And it may be that for some people, the idea of home-based education will conjure up rather claustrophobic images. The point for me, however, is that the nuclear family becomes claustrophobic only when the household loses most of its productive functions. Once, the household was a center of economic and social life, which produced most of its own needs. And only as it lost these functions did it take on the sometimes cloying emotional character of what we now call the nuclear family. Seen in these terms, what John Holt is proposing is the reintroduction of significant content into the life of the household. And children at home are also potentially children in the world, adding spontaneity and vitality to the life of public places. Home-based education, of course, is not a panacea. It cannot, for example, supply the social interaction, which is also an important part of learning. Although, if children are out of school, they are at least potentially free to participate in informal learning associations. 
Seymour Papert. It's obvious that a lot of learning can happen in a home and maybe better than in a school, but on the other hand, having s- s- places where people can get together socially, where there can be a lot of them interacting and where there can be joint projects and where many people at different levels of of mastery of of the knowledge being used are present in the same place, I think this is also very essential. By far the most important kind of learning happens by interactions with other people who are learning as well. I've been terribly struck, I mean, dramatically struck by how when children work with computers, when one child is stuck, he or she can turn to the other children around and say, what can I do here? And the other child can say, oh, let me try or do something. Try this, the other child will say. And trying this might have just enough um, enough of usefulness and enough of insight into the problem to get the other child going on it. If the world is to really become present and available to our children, we need to build back the informal environments in which children can actually feel that they are part of the life of the culture. Economists draw a distinction between the formal and informal economies, dividing what is done for money from what is done from love or obligation. So far, we have tended to value mainly what swells the gross national product, while neglecting those services which are performed for free. This is one reason why the productive social role of parents is so grossly undervalued. Now we face a situation where the care of young children is rapidly being transferred from the informal to the formal economy, becoming in the process just another professional service delivered either by the state or a private corporation. But is there possibly a middle ground? In her book, The Erosion of Childhood, Valerie Saransky suggests that we could develop daycare in a very different way. If we're going to talk about setting up um, free available daycare to anyone who needs it, how are we going to do it? Should we be placing it in the hands of uh, the state? Should we be placing it in the hands of private industry? Should we be placing this responsibility in the hands of communities? so that we have decentralized, uh, small, local-level control over these centers? And what kinds of of models should should we be following in in this regard? I would be strongly opposed to extending the schooling ideology, as I called it earlier, into the preschool. I think that's happening already in the professional training that early childhood educators get. And I think it's a serious mistake because I think what it's done is involve um, educators and childcare workers and those of us who are involved in uh, working with young children in what I would call the professionalization of the early lives of young children where we're setting up many schools for them. And in fact, the term preschool isn't a misnomer. We are attempting to school the children so that when they reach kindergarten and first grade, they are already meeting um, the so-called schooling criteria as as they begin their, their elementary years. I think instead we should be looking to the setting up of informal extended family centers that mirror the non-institutional, as far as possible, aspects of daily life that in fact our early childhood centers should be play-oriented, should be child-centered, should be intergenerational where possible so that children have contact with older people, foster grandparents, uh, and, and that we don't have such an age-segregated institution. I would also advocate that we have uh, a great deal of parent participation and that in fact part of having parent participation involves certain social transformations in the workplace where the workplace also is made to be more responsive to parents who work and who have young children. I think the best model that we have at present that is also a non-sexist model probably exists in Sweden where for the first nine months of of an infant's life and I think probably that's the most pressing time period for parents of young children either the father or the mother 
can choose to stay home full-time or they can split the nine months between themselves and receive I think 90% of, of his or her salary and from the 9 to 18 month period the parents can still stay home with a child receive a daily allowance for the child and have a full and guaranteed job to return to after the 18 month period at which point small neighborhood community-based childcare centers are available if the mother's still breastfeeding for example she can take off work go visit her child at lunchtime and in this way I think the child care center becomes something of an extension of, of the life of the parent and isn't such an age segregated institution. The fact that older people, um, foster grandparents, would be encouraged to participate in the centers I think is a great idea and in fact we have that program operating now in Ann Arbor and the benefits to, to the children in the daycare centers as well as to the older people is enormous. So you have then an intergenerational bond established and I think setting up that kind of center which I would call child-friendly as opposed to the alien institutional universe that I think we we condemn many of our, our young children to still has links with with the world of the the parent and with the world of the family and in many instances I think these small centers mirror some of the positive aspects of what you could call an, an extended family. It seems to me that Valerie Saransky and John Holt are coming at the same question from different sides. Saransky imagines a convivial, child-centered type of daycare which involves parents and which mirrors the informal, non-institutional aspects of daily life. Holt has come to the conclusion that the home is the place to start building a world in which children can take a more active part. What they have in common is that they both stand on the other side of a watershed which divides those who believe that children need to be rigorously socialized from those who believe that we need to take our cues from children themselves. I conclude tonight's program with a final reflection on this theme from John Holt. Many people, and I think this is true on the left, are seeing all kinds of social problems. Think that school ought to be a place where children are taught about social issues and made to feel indignant about all the injustices of the day as kind of training ground for political radicals. And they would say probably to me, I guess probably some of them have said, well, if children are just learning at home and just learning the things that are interested them and pursuing their own interests and happiness, you know, how are we going to make a better world? How are we going to deal with the problem of the starving and the oppressed and so forth? How are they going to learn the, uh, social, the social virtues of generosity and kindness and compassion and concern and so forth and so forth? It's a, and it's a good question, I think. And for me, the best answer, I won't say it's a complete answer, but the best answer to this question is in my John L. Sullivan story. When Sullivan was, as the story goes, when he was heavyweight prize-fighting champion of the world, he was in New York City riding a trolley car one afternoon with a friend, standing up, holding onto a strap. The car came to a stop, young man got on, been drinking in a saloon, big man, he had quite a lot to drink, he was feeling pretty belligerent, pushed and shoved his way up the aisle, and as he came past John L. Sullivan, he gave him a big shove with his shoulder, shoved him out of the way. And John L. clutched at the strap to keep from losing his balance, and this young man went back to the back of the car. John L.'s friend had seen this and said to John L., are you going to stand for that? And John L. said, oh, I don't know why not. And the friend was furiously indignant. He said, but you're the heavyweight champion of the world. You don't have to be so damn polite. And John L. said, the heavyweight champion of the world can afford to be polite. Now, I think the social virtues 
are overflowings. They're surplus. That people have enough kindness for others when they have enough for themselves. Otherwise, not. It's perfectly true that some people come out of the experience of school and college with an ideology of social concern, but their ways of working for it are very often self-defeating. They tend to hate and despise their opponents. They don't convert people to their... They're not, a, for the most part, effective, and the proof of it we see in the world around us. My very strong feeling is that if children are allowed a growing up which enables them to come become adults with a strong sense of their own dignity and competence and worth. They will extend these feelings to include other people. On Ideas Tonight, the concluding program in our four-part series, The World of the Child. The series was prepared and presented by David Cayley, with production by Damiano Pietropolo and technical operations by Lorne Talk. Special thanks to Susan Cramond and Irwin and Allison Moss. We've prepared a list of books and articles on The World of the Child. For your free copy, write to us at Ideas, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, Ontario, M5W, 1E6. Executive producer of Ideas is Geraldine Sherman. I'm Kevin Marsh. A printed transcript of The World of the Child will be available at the end of the series. Send your requests to CBC Transcripts, The World of the Child, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, Ontario, M5W, 1E6, enclosing a check or money order payable to CBC Transcripts. Please allow six weeks for delivery. <laughs>